Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. There's so much knowledge in today's episode that I needed help delivering it all to you. So our first piece is an interview by my Brookings Press colleague, Bill Finan, with the author of a new Brookings book on five rising democracies. And then in the fourth installment of our Steve Hess story series, you'll hear Steve Hess remember the first speech he ever wrote for President Dwight Eisenhower. Before I get to the show, I want to remind you to email your comments or questions to experts who have been on the program to bcp at brookings.edu, and I'll get them answered in upcoming episodes. And now, Bill Finan's interview with Ted Picone, senior fellow in our foreign policy program and author of a new book titled Five Rising Democracies and the Fate of the International Liberal Order. Over to you, Bill. Thanks, Fred. Ted, glad to see you. I know you've been busy, especially when it comes to writing a book about five countries. I want to ask two larger questions about your new book's title. First, what are the five rising democracies discussed in the book? And second, what is the liberal international order, and why should our listeners be interested in knowing about that? Thanks, Bill. Uh, Why don't I start with the second question, because that's the context for this discussion, the international liberal order, which sounds fancy and wonkish, but in fact has some very concrete components to it that have been built up over many years, really the last 70 years since the founding of the United Nations. And that is a set of norms and practices of international cooperation um, that advance human freedom, that advance human development, and that advance security, international security. And in those areas of kind of global governance, if you want to put it that way, um, we've seen many steps forward and many steps backwards. But the overarching story is one of progress, is one of greater cooperation among the world's countries to address our common problems. So the international liberal order is uh, a catch-all phrase to to capture all these various components that address uh, the global situation we all live in. We live in one, one planet. Um, why these five countries? And these five countries are India, Brazil, South Africa, Turkey, and Indonesia. And together they represent about 25% of the world's population. And these are big, diverse countries that have come from very different places in terms of their own histories, from colonialism, from military dictatorship, from apartheid, um, to a very different place, to much more open, liberal societies with huge progress still to go, um, but important changes that happened uh, over the last 30 years. And I wanted to take a look at that change since their milestone, their turning points toward greater openness and liberalization, and what can we learn from, from those transitions? You know, the whole project of supporting democracy and human rights around the world has flowered since the end of the Cold War, um, but one can see a real recession in the last several years, and that's been documented by different groups. And so that's also part of the the story to be told here, that these countries have made tremendous progress, according to the data that I've collected, but are also stagnating or even falling backwards. And I thought that was an important point we need to understand in terms of their role in the world. Because these countries have great aspirations for having a bigger voice in the international liberal order that we talked about. So it's not a book that cheerleads at all, but is offering a very realistic appraisal of of these democracies. I mean, I try to walk the line between recognizing the progress of the last 30 years and 
let's take a moment to reflect on that. Um, in several different categories, from political and civil rights to uh, economic growth and uh, human development, you can identify uh, major steps forward. Um, I'm most concerned about the political and civil rights stagnation, and and the the data shows uh, that it's not going in the right direction, particularly in countries like Turkey. Uh, Turkey has uh, made really big steps in in the early 2000s. And after many years of instability, very strong military hand in politics, interventions by the military, um, to a place where there was uh, much greater competition politically with the rise of an Islamist party that was working within the democratic uh, rules of the game to advance a whole set of uh, measures that were in the direction of, of liberal reforms. Um, but it has really receded in the last several years under uh, President Erdogan, who was prime minister as well for many years. Um, but overall, I would say in political and civil rights, it's a good news story with some recent backsliding. In terms of economic growth, there is uh, uh, big jumps in per capita economic growth. This is globally or in, in these I'm five countries? I'm talking about these five countries. Okay, yes. um, it also overlaps with some global trends. But these five countries actually outperform the global average over the last 30 years. Years, including China, by the way, um, which is a surprise to a lot of people because China is held up as the example of very fast economic growth, uh, but without much uh, political freedom. And these countries show that you can have both. You can have democratization and improvements in political uh, freedoms and at the same time grow your economies and improve in terms of human development. Each of these countries have uh, reduced infant and maternal mortality, have reduced poverty, have increased literacy, increased rates of quality education. Um, these are the kinds of tangible benefits that people can experience firsthand. Now, is it fast enough? No. Is it broad enough? No. Um, there is still a long ways to go, but the data is very encouraging. I wanted to take a few minutes, actually, to discuss each of the five countries you focus on in the book, and I'd like to begin with India, actually which has had a tumultuous relationship with democracy, a long one, but tumultuous. Can India be a model democracy for South Asia and the rest of Asia? Can it be a model for democracy that the United States has been itself or has wanted to be for the rest of the world? So I, I always um, try to avoid the word model because okay. I think that there are examples that India offers to the world that are interesting and positive, and then there are examples and practices that are not so great. I would uh, point to their electoral process as quite remarkable given the number of um, the number of people who live in the country um, and their um, diversity of language and living conditions. And year after year, India is able to pull off uh, national and local elections that are considered professional, free, and fair. You know, maybe the United States has something to learn about that. We have our own mm. problems with our electoral <laughs> system. Um, India also, I think, in its neighborhood is an example of a country that is so diverse uh, that Indians themselves told me we could not live as a country 
accept as a democracy because there was no other way to reconcile the pluralism and diversity unless there was just endless war. And they made that decision, you know, in the early years of their independence, that this was the way, the only way forward for India to survive. India is not unique in having a diverse culture. And therefore, I think it is a good example for other parts of South Asia and and Asia and, and other parts of the world that if you want to live in some kind of, um, peace, then there needs to be some reconciliation and democratic processes offer the best way to do that. So some of those in the United States who have been pointing to a sort of a clannish aspects, the need for division, could, could look to India to, to see that multi-ethnic, multi-religious sphere can work within a democracy, and that's the only way it can work. And I think at the same time, people would point to all the failings of India's, um, you know, there is still caste and intertribal violence, and this is not um, a panacea, but the alternative looks a lot worse. And so this is the thing about democracy, that it, it leaves open the possibility for constant change and renewal and reform. And you see that in country after country that has adopted democratic systems. Let's turn to Brazil. What role has it played in the turn to democracy in Latin America? Brazil is somewhat different from the rest of Spanish-speaking Latin America. It's Portuguese um, and has seen itself as somewhat apart. But in the last, I would say, 20 years, they decided that they really wanted to be a leader of uh, Latin America and, and challenging the United States in many ways. And I think that's been an important uh, role that they've played because in the tumultuous period of transition from military dictatorships to democracy in Latin America, um, Brazil is the heavyweight that was able to work itself through their own transition and grow their economy in very big ways, uh, I think did provide a, kind of a, a ballast to uh, what is, uh, you know, the, it's the largest country in the region. It touches every single other country except for one or two others. Um, it has that kind of um, uh, influence in the region and it, that aspiration to have influence. It's not 100% accepted as the hegemon by its neighbors, but it's seen as a peaceful, uh, supportive uh, neighbor. And I think uh, it's played an important role. Do we need to be concerned about the recent tumult on the Brazilian political scene, the charges of corruption, the concern with economic inequality that's being voiced? And since it's in the news, too, and this is an additional question, do you think the Dilma government will be able to deal with the Zika virus outbreak to calm public fears? Well, the political and economic crisis in Brazil is very serious, uh, and it's going to take them a while to get through it. Uh, but I do not think it's a, a, an institutional crisis. I think that the structures of government are responding in appropriate ways. The fact that you have these independent prosecutors and judges that are taking on these cases and revealing uh, just how entrenched corruption is in Brazilian uh, politics is very important. That's a sign of strength um, for Brazilian democracy. But and, and you have a robust media and civil society and social media that are also pushing and demanding change in, in Brazil. And I think that's uh, an encouraging kind of bright spot in what is otherwise a, a 
difficult picture right now. On Zika virus, uh, you know, Brazil uh, will have to really um, invest very quickly in uh, addressing this problem and the public health consequences, particularly in terms of the Olympics coming up in, in the summer, uh, which is uh, a flagship opportunity for them after the World Cup in 2014. Now you have the Summer Olympics in Rio. Uh, and I think um, so far uh, they are taking the right steps to address the problem. But it's not just Brazil. You know, there are many other countries facing this uh, this issue. So it really does require an international response. Was there a connection between the Brazilian government and the U.S. opening to Cuba that occurred recently? That's a great question. I've been spending a lot of time on Cuba, and I think Brazil has played an important role in um, challenging the United States' position on Cuba. Uh, they have been clearly, as most of the rest of the world, opposed to the embargo and have taken advantage of the U.S. not being engaged in Cuba to um, provide support to the Cuban government. I think with the leftists in power in Brazil, that has been a sense of solidarity, but also they see they're making a bet on Cuba's future that eventually the embargo will be lifted and Cuba will become an important transshipment point and place to do business vis-a-vis the U.S. market. And so Brazil decided uh, several years ago to invest over $800 million in a project to renovate uh, the main port uh, in, in Cuba. Uh, the Mariel port and turn it into an economic development zone that is beginning to uh, you know take shape in important ways. The other quick point to make about Brazil Cuba is that Cubans send hundreds, if not thousands, of doctors and other medical workers and teachers to remote corners of Brazil where there is a real shortage of health care. And this has been quite popular in, in Brazil. So there's a... Um, a two-way street in this relationship. I'm going to shift the focus across the Atlantic to South Africa, uh, the third country. What role has it played in the neighborhood since the end of apartheid and the emergence of a true multiracial democracy in the country? I'm especially curious to hear about what you think about its relationship with Mugabe and Zimbabwe. Yeah, I go into some length in, uh, in the book about this um, because it's largely been a very disappointing story. You know, there was so much hope and excitement about the transition from apartheid to multiracial democracy in South Africa. And Nelson Mandela is this iconic figure um, who very explicitly called for um, democracy and human rights as a centerpiece of South African foreign policy. And in fact, he did take a number of important steps in his uh, term in office. But after that, under uh, Mbeki and and Zuma, uh, you saw a real decline in South Africa's willingness to be a voice for uh, change in favor of democracy in the region, um, at best a very ambivalent approach. And that was most obvious in the case of Zimbabwe, uh, which really, I think, shows how the power of the African National Congress, the party that dominates politics in South Africa really uh, runs the show. And there, issues of solidarity, historical solidarity that Mugabe and others in Zimbabwe showed to South Africa's uh, uh, and ANC's um, revolution and campaign, you know, that is a long um, memory and uh, loyalty matters. Those ties bind. They really do. Yeah. And even though, you know, 
thousands of Zimbabweans were fleeing the poverty and drought and hunger and political repression in Zimbabwe to South Africa, which was causing problems in South Africa. But nonetheless, uh, they continued to kind of give Mugabe uh, soft treatment, I think. And this has been a big political debate in South Africa and the region. Um, Mugabe's still there. And uh, I think they've learned to kind of get along, uh, but it's not. It's a discouraging example for South Africa. But but in South Africa, generally, though, as in Brazil, the institutional structures of democracy are strong. They're resilient. I would say, overall, yes, and they've come a long way. There's some weak. Um, the ANC, the domination of the ANC, is certainly a concern. It, that that system, I think, breeds corruption, and there have been a number of allegations against uh, President Zuma and other leaders in the party uh, in that sense. And also, I think there's some frustration on the part of younger people who weren't involved in the struggle against apartheid and are not seeing the kind of economic growth. Also, South Africa decided to really hitch its start to China as a key economic partner and trading partner. And with the decline of Chinese economy, it's hurting South Africa directly. I'm going to come back now to Turkey, which you touched on earlier. And has the Ankara model, Turkey as a model of a democratic, secular Muslim country, become a historical artifact in the last few years? Or can it still have a positive influence on neighboring Muslim countries in the Middle East? I think it's premature to say it's a historical artifact. Okay. Uh, And I think one sign of that was the elections last year in which there was a clear popular um, counter push on Erdogan's claim for, you know, he wants to expand even more the presidential powers. Yes. And um, that was turned down. Now, he then played a very tough uh, card in the runoff elections, the follow-on snap elections, rather, in the fall, and he kind of recovered some of that ground, but not enough to um, control any constitutional changes that would really, um, if it went all the way he wants to go, would, I think, make uh, democracy uh, so illiberal that would be somewhat unrecognizable. Now, um, that said, it's certainly uh, become a very disappointing example of the compatibility of Islam and democracy. But I think it's still within um, the realm of, of possibility. I think, you know, you have to understand Turkey's history, um, very deep roots of secular um, politics and those forces are still very much active and present in Turkish society and politics. There's also the aspiration for European Union uh, membership, and that's been an important pull uh, toward liberal norms. Now, what's happening now, because of the threat of migration coming through Turkey from Syria and other parts of the world, is Europeans are basically um, cutting a deal with uh, Ankara and and saying that um, we need your cooperation to stop the flow of migrants and we'll help you get into the European Union and we won't say much on the human rights problems. And and Turkish uh, administration, government is really exploiting that and cracking down more and more on journalists, on academics, on uh, in social media, on anyone who they see as a threat uh, to their power. Let's turn to the fifth country in the book, another Muslim and secular nation, and that's Indonesia. Like South Korea, it seems to have had the most positive movement forward without backsliding from authoritarianism to democracy. 
But what I want to ask about Indonesia is this. Can it act as, I'm going to use that word you don't like, model, <laughs> for the entire Muslim world as a democratic nation that is still a Muslim nation, one that balances the separation of mosque and state? Yeah, I think Indonesia is one of the most positive examples uh, that we can see, not uh, for Asia and for the Muslim world. I think that Indonesia's transition was very rocky after many years under Suharto, um, in which many of those years were good economic growth years. But eventually, uh, and this is what we see in other cases, you have the volatility of um, economic growth and and depression under autocratic leaders uh, with little transparency. In this case, they kind of pierce that that boil and uh, move pretty quickly toward a democratic system. In their founding years, they decided that Islam would not be the state religion. They very clearly said, we want to have a multi-religious society, and it was written into their constitution. And I think as long as that remains intact, Indonesia will be a place where certainly Islam is important, but it's not a political force in the way it is in in other countries. Um, And I think that's all the positive for Indonesia's um, own development and their example to other societies. And I would point to Tunisia as another country that has decided to um, make Islam a, a very important part of their society, but not the exclusive uh, controlling factor in their politics. And uh, I think that is the right formula going forward. I'm going to return back to the larger theme of the book, the International Liberal Order. And you, At one point in the book, you say there are emerging fault lines in the international debates on human rights and national security. Can you explain what that means and what it means for the fate of the liberal international order? Sure. I mean, over many years, we've really seen the the, the liberal order led by the established rich democracies of the West. And yes, you have a Security Council at the UN that Russia and China uh, have vetoes on, and they have different systems. Uh, but it's only been recently that you see two things happening. One, a a crisis of confidence among the Western democracies. Europe, very preoccupied with its own problems. The 2008 economic recession was certainly a blow to our systems um, and uh, pointed out a lot of the failures of our our political system. And and the apathy, uh, the corruption that is becoming more and more prevalent and obvious, I think this is um, causing some concern and, and, and slowing down the ability of the United States and other countries to lead. The rise of Russia and China and other autocracies, you know, they finding their voice and pushing hard back against the color revolutions, against the role of the Internet in their societies, against Western, what they say, imposition of values of, like, gay rights, that this is against, you know, this is uh, also another phenomenon. And in the middle, you have this sea of democracies that are rising in influence, but not sure which direction to go between these two camps. And I think that's why I wanted to focus on these five countries, because finding consensus at the international level does require these states to be in the picture and have a seat at the table. And they come to the table with very ambivalent views about the Western-led international liberal order. Now, a couple of cases to point to. One would be Iraq and, you know, the way that was cast as, you know, 
bringing democracy at the point of a gun into this country um, really was a huge setback to the wave uh, toward democracy that we saw uh, after the Cold War. Um, Secondly, you had the crisis in Libya and the very strong international consensus to intervene to protect civilians, which is now a doctrine at, at the United Nations. The responsibility to protect. The responsibility to protect civilians. But it went very badly. And the international community, uh, meaning really in this case the United States and Europe, uh, demanding a very quick exit and leaving chaos in its wake. And in the midst of uh, the rise of uh, insurgents and uh, Islamist uh, fanatics in the region that only fed into a sense of of chaos and and, and the growing power of al-Qaeda and ISIS and, and other forces. So I think when you look at those examples, countries like South Africa and India and Brazil say, why should we align with you on throwing military forces into these societies that only create more problems? Uh, we should find diplomatic solutions to these problems and do much more to, uh, to you know, short of use of force. And, and I think that's the tension that is playing out uh, across several different domains and certainly in Syria. Uh, a real reluctance, you know, the UN has been very uh, slow to really get engaged on the Syria problem, in part uh, because of what happened in Libya. So we're at a pivotal moment, but it's not a dire moment when it comes to the international liberal order. Uh, I think it, it's dire if the pivot goes in the wrong direction. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that's what I worry about, okay. that if we're moving toward a purely um, interest-based uh, strategic autonomy, each state wants maximum flexibility to pursue their own national economic interests, then you're, you're going to lose the ability to reach international consensus and actual collective action to address common problems. I mean, if you have a failed state that is overrun by terrorists and spawning refugees and all kinds of crises, that's a place where there's a lack of democracy. There's a lack of democratic peace and stability. And we need to address the root causes. And, you know, democracies need to understand that this is in their common interest to support democracy and human rights in other countries. I don't think you're going to convince the autocrats to come with you on this. But if you can get a majority of states uh, to uh, understand the linkages between democracy, peace and security and economic development, which these five countries have exhibited, uh, you'll get to much better outcomes uh, globally. As I said earlier, this I was impressed how realistic in its appraisal of where these democracies are, where democracy is in the world, uh, this book is. There are quite a few books out there that cheerlead on democracy, and this is not one of those. It's, it's a hard-headed appraisal. Was it a hard book to write? It was a hard book to write to really look at five very complex societies and draw some comparisons that came together in the context, in a, in a global context. And uh, I went to each of these five countries and met with, you know, hundreds of academics and policymakers and diplomats and NGO activists. And um, so it was a great learning experience. And what I pulled away from all of that was a real um, sense that, you know, democracy is not a Western concept. These are societies that come out of very different histories and all have decided that this is the path they have chosen, that they want a society that's more open, that has um, checks and balances and ability of people to, to make 
some decisions in their own lives. That, to me, is a very encouraging uh, story, that such diverse countries have reached this same conclusion. Now the question is how to build on it. Ted, thank you for talking to us today. You're welcome. Thank you. You can find the book, Five Rising Democracies and the Fate of the International Liberal Order, on our website at brookings.edu. And now, Steve Hess recounts writing his first speech for President Eisenhower. Steve is the author of the recent Brookings book, America's Political Dynasties, from Adams to Clinton. After 60 years, you told every story you could think of some which way, but I've never told this before. My first speech writing for President Eisenhower. First of all, uh, going to work in 1958 in the fall, I got out of the Army on Labor Day weekend, and the first speech I wrote for the president uh, was September 26th of that month. The president was to dedicate Fort Ligonier in western Pennsylvania, which had been reconstructed, a fort from the French Indian War. The idea would be uh, that George Washington had been there in battle, and now it was going to be rededicated by another general who was president of the United States. So I was going to research George Washington, and it seemed like a really natural confluence of, of generals and presidents. What I found, however, was that young George Washington with his troops from Virginia were coming around this fort clockwise, and another young American troop was coming around clockwise, counterclockwise. They came together and started to kill each other. So that what was I going to write? That the, our first president had the first example of uh, friendly fire? It didn't seem like much of a speech. So I scrapped it. And in fact, I think the first words I ever wrote for a president was, uh, today Fort Ligonier looks much as it did to young Colonel George Washington. <laughs> but uh, nothing about friendly fire. You can find America's Political Dynasties on our website at brookings.edu slash political dynasties. And more Steve Hess stories are on our SoundCloud channel. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher. Plus, thanks to Carissa Nitschi, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, Rebecca Beiser, Bill Finan, and our intern, Sarah Abdelrahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. Remember to send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.